0: Hey everyone, how you doing? It's Clara and I'm back with another one of my science chats where I talk to people who work in STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medical science, about their research, about their research background, about what they're doing now and also about uh, making science um, welcoming for everyone, more representative of the population. And today uh, I'm talking to Dr. Lillian Hunt who works for the uh, e, uh who works for edis which is an independent uh, charity in medical science which is founded by um uh, the Wellcome trust uh glaxo klein and uh the francis crick institute as well as a whole bunch of other medical science institutes um working on making um you know, medical science say more um improving the equity in, in medical science so Uh, it was great to be able to chat to her i also was able to chat to her a little bit about um the ethics of animal testing and stuff like that which wasn't intended but it was where the conversation went it was quite a long conversation but in a good way um and so yeah i had really good fun and it's also really nice to have someone on my channel that uh, i think so far all my guests like uh uh, chris jackson and, and 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 Andrew everyone's uh, been working in research institutes in uh, universities and so this was a good opportunity to talk to someone who's done uh, research but then sort of moved slightly outside of that so we're getting a different perspective uh, on science careers really Uh, uh, as we will with our next guest as well Um, but uh, more of that later so yeah without uh, further ado um, let's go and chat to uh, Lily. Hi Lily, how are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm good, thank you.
0: How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yes, yeah, so technical problems aside with internets and crashing TVs and microphones not being plugged in, we're doing all right. I think we're doing good. Yeah, I'm so got it covered. Yeah, yeah. Technical. Yay! This is we build the equipment. We don't know have to know how to use it. I think. <laughs> so. of practice. Yeah. Oh, nothing. I'm worried about a conference that's coming up where technically we're in charge and i don't think we've got tech i'm like oh anyway (laughs) (laughs) um so for the audience at home can you introduce yourself tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I should have prepared this bit a little bit better, uh, knowing that you probably would have asked me who I am and what I do. But here we go. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm Lily Hunt. I uh, work at the Wellcome Trust at the moment. I'm the EDIS program lead. So that's the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion in Science and Health um, program, which is actually a coalition of organizations across uh, science and health research. And then we've got about 18 member organizations, branching funders, society, uh, research institutes, uh, different charities, uh, things like that. So uh, that's what I lead at the moment. Um, My background is I did a PhD in genetics. Um, It was at the National Institute for Medical Research, which transitioned into the Francis Crick Institute during my time. Um, So, yeah, so that's kind of my background in terms of who else I am. I mean, it's very hard to tell these days with lockdown what my hobbies are. So um, I guess staying in the flat is sort of my main hobby. (laughs) I don't know. Like previously i'd be like going out having fun no i i like the living room
0: <laughs> yeah um massive interest in cleaning the kitchen and things like that <laughs> yeah we've all been there so <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird old time <laughs> um it doesn't help when you yeah well yeah we were, let's let's know i was just about to try and do a riff on cleaning the kitchen but i really don't need to i think we've all i think we've all cleaned kitchens before
1: sure yeah (laughs) we've all okay we've already we've already crashed the conversation brilliant Brilliant. i'm excited for the rest of this
0: already crashed clara that's easily done though um (laughs) Um. so i need to reboot (laughs) so yeah so you um you work at the francis crick institute which is in london and which i have been to once which is kind of exciting um or twice i think oh i think i i don't know i've either been there once or twice but you're there or you normally would be there quite a lot, I suppose. Well,
1: I mean, so I did my PhD there and um, finished that in, what, 2017? <laughs> Gosh, maybe a little bit earlier than that. It's hard to tell. Where, what year are we in now? Um, yeah. But then I've been at the Wellcome Trust ever since. But like, The Francis Crick Institute is one of the founding members of EDIS, so I do get to uh, communicate with them there quite a lot and uh, go over and have meetings here and there as well. But most of the time, lockdown aside, based in welcome trust on the euston road which is a lovely place to work
0: oh okay cool this um yeah i i didn't i don't know why i didn't realize that and so yeah you did your phd um in well what is now the Crick. so what was that on what was what was the sort of topic what was it you were looking at
1: yeah, so um, I was working specifically on um, conserved non-coding elements within a um, uh, genome. So this is something that my boss, um, Greg Elgar, my supervisor, he uh, was really involved in the sequencing of the pufferfish genome, which is one of like the most compact genomes that um, exists, basically. The idea is that there's a lot, of, a lot less of what we used to call <laughs> junk DNA uh, in a pufferfish genome so, when you compare the pufffish genome to uh, the human genome, actually vertebrate genomes in general, um, you obviously have a lot of genes that are homologous to each other and lots of um, you know, replication there in terms of what you'd expect. You know, pretty much most uh, vertebrate organisms run off essentially the same set of genes. But then outside of the genes in the non coding regions, um, he found loads of chunks of sequence that were basically almost identical that weren't genes. Um, and the idea was like, OK, so we've had millions and millions of years of evolution between the you know, ancestors of a puffer fish and a human. And yet we have all of these chunks of DNA, I think it's something like 6,000, got this cracking back a little bit, 6,000 of chunks or so that are almost identical, that have survived all of that evolution, all of that potential mutation by chance, despite the fact that it sh- isn't the same selective pressure that. Genes have. So, you know, if you have a mutation in a gene that could mess up the protein, mess up the protein function, you're quite um, clearly, you know, that's not going to happen too much in the population, or at least you'd hope it wouldn't happen too much because then you'd have faulty proteins going on. Whereas these these non coding elements, they're not coding the proteins, but they're still exactly the same almost. And then we looked across all vertebrate organisms, they kind of existed in exactly the same way in all vertebrate species. Um, So, this was an area of interest and it was kind of back when we were just moving out of the idea of like all of the non-coding genome was junk was what when i started i think it was maybe my a-levels that was kind of the the idea that all of this stuff is just extra stuff that's just been kept we've not got rid of it because the human genome isn't evolving in a directional manner or in an efficient manner necessarily, but it's it's there. You know, God knows where some of it comes from. Is it viruses, things like that? You know, all of this sort of stuff was being speculated when I did my A levels. By the time I was through to PhD, we're like, hold on, some of this could actually be interesting and could actually be useful and could have a reason why it's still there. So yeah, having that evidence of sort of uh, these regions surviving sort of I guess uh, evolution tells us that maybe they are important for something but then the inferring section was like okay if all of this stuff is the same invertebrates what is the same invertebrates and it's the whole thing it's the head the spinal cord the neural tube you know that sort of stuff in early development specifically you look at you know albeit Slightly skewed drawings of embryos where vertebrate embryos were drawn next to each other and made to look very similar. They are actually a bit similar in vertebrates, you know, that sort of there's a couple of stages that look pretty similar. But most importantly, it's like the process of development, which includes the neural tube, the spinal cord, you know, the brain, the the sort of that that section that makes a vertebrate a vertebrate is pretty similar. So my boss's previous work was around. Looking at whether or not these regions were gene enhancers or instructions for the genes, basically, so the way I like to explain it is all of your genes are the ingredients to make a cake, okay, which is great. You've got all the ingredients out in front of you. But can you imagine i just gave you all the ingredients and didn't tell you when to put what into where, how much, or when to take it out of the oven? You wouldn't really be able to make a cake, let alone would everyone be able to make cakes in the same sort of way. And that's yeah. kind of like making a human. You know, you've got all your genes, you've got all your ingredients, but you need to know how to put them together. So we're, we're looking at these elements. And what you can do is you can take out these elements of the human, human genome, these conserved non-coding elements, stick them in front. This is really crass language here. Stick them in front front of a jellyfish gene, uh, GFP, Mm -hmm. um, green fluorescent protein, and then inject that into um, a zebrafish embryo, uh, sort of the one cell stage, gets taken up by the zebrafish cells. And then over the course of the next 24 to pushing sort of 72 hours, you can visualize the uh, zebrafish under a microscope and basically look for the areas that light up green that tell you that that section of human DNA that's conserved on coding element. Is kind of instructing genes to switch on in that area. Wow. Um. So I've got loads of great pictures of zebrafish embryos sort of about 24, 48 hours old with just like little green light up bits in their brains, basically. <laughs> um, that's, an interesting that's really thing cool. To have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, more interesting than the fact that I think one time I went to my supervisor's office and he just pulled out a pufferfish dried skin from his like drawer and was like, look at this. And I'm like, why have you got that? Never mind. Um, <laughs> So, so, yeah, so that's kind of like the enhancer side of things. Then, So that's kind of like a load of work that came before my PhD, really. And then my work was then taking groups of people who had mutations um, in those genes that were either related to... The, so groups of individuals that were either sort of uh, patient groups, so they all had like the same sort of um, developmental disorder, for example, um, or groups of people um, who had something interesting um, biologically going on basically which we think might have been to do with sort of development differences but we weren't entirely sure where. I sequenced all of their conserved non-coding elements basically and looked for mutations that were different amongst those groups compared to those expected in the general population so then started experimenting with whether or not if I injected those enhancer elements so those those conserved non-coding elements In their sort of wild type form looked at where they lit up versus in their mutated form and saw if there was any difference into where they lit up um, in the zebrafish embryos as well to see whether we could figure out anything about the language of these conserved non-coding elements and basically you know do mutations matter in them do single point mutations matter in the same way like do they do in genes is there any information we can gather from that that could say you know like multiple mutations across multiple Enhancers could lead to sort of disorders and things like that, and it was a really interesting project. You know, more questions than answers at the end of it, like I think most PhDs have. Um, and I did a really did a really cool study actually with um, a group. Uh, it was a, a group in Denmark, and it was a, a obesity study. They had a really well um, a, a well uh, well sort of like data managed group of um, individuals who were sort of in the extreme end of obesity who um, they tracked from childhood basically as well so we could look at historical data and basically we use that information to look at specifically there was like about a two million bases worth of DNA that had conserved encoding coding elements in it um, that we were looking at for mutations there as well and that kind of inferred to us actually um, a bit about the mutations in some of these areas potentially being linked to um a specific set of um genes that were actually more involved in development than anything else. So this is the IRX cluster. Um, whereas previously like research had been looking at maybe like the FTO genes because that was FTO gene, that was where the mutation directly was linked. So that idea of like these long range enhancers, mutations in them, plus at the same time some stuff around um topologically associating domains was coming out. So this is kind of how DNA pies itself in knots so that two bits that are really far away are actually really close in space um, and that tells us that you know like you can get a gene over here an enhancer over here and when we look at it linearly you're like oh they've got nothing to do with each other but then we started mapping how dna was like coiling up in terms of like uh, knots and stuff and we realized that those two bits are actually really close to each other um, and therefore likely to influence each other so all of that kind sort of was happening at the same time which was really cool to see so
0: yeah it's yeah. really
1: started of like it was really nice to be at that sort of point where people were really sort of look turning turning all of it so we'd had the idea of this junk realised it was important and then we're starting to realize what some of this stuff was actually doing um i feel a bit out of touch with the research now but it definitely felt like we were at this point where we're starting like really early stages starting to understand a bit more around like language of like the dna in these sort of enhancer elements and, and sort of this idea of the 3d structure of dna being so important within all of this so yeah it's a really long-winded explanation of like everything i've done in research
0: well that's because you've done a lot in research and it's great because i mean i don't know any of this so i um hear terms like junk dna and i've got an idea of what it is and i've been hearing that it's not good to call it junk dna because actually we kind of need some of it But it's really good as a layperson in this regard to sort of hear more about how it's working together and even, uh, you know, the shape and how it orientates, you know, around each other is, is just as important as everything else. And I think it was important to hear you, well, interesting to hear you talking about how like viruses could leave their marks on DNA potentially or... I don't know if that's what you were actually saying. That's what I, I picked mean, there's, up. There's,
1: def- there's definitely thoughts around that. There's definitely thoughts about like archaic, like, for example, like archaic, like bacteria back in the day, you know, like inserting itself into the human genome. And that's actually the, the way that, so we have um, jumping genes, I think is the best way of describing it. You know, okay. we've got bits of DNA that can actually like move around and stuff like that. You know, that that, that doesn't come, Initially from humans, that comes from external and it goes into uh, into into our uh, DNA. Sort of at some point, you know, and we actually now, you know, we've utilized that and use it for when we're trying to do experiments, for example, with DNA as well. Which I think is, I like I like that whole sort of cycle of like, there are bits that we can potentially explain by, um, you know, DNA like insertions from other organisms, but then also to then sort of recognize some of that and then utilize it to our advantage within research, I think is also like a really neat way of like looking at this sort of stuff. So, you know, even the stuff that you, back in the day, you might've been like, oh, it's useless. Like it's, it's becoming useful in different ways.
0: That's really interesting. I, I, I know this will sound really, uh, probably really obscure, but you're talking about zebrafish and I feel like I've heard a number of talk on zebrafish, like hmm. a zebrafish, what is it about zebrafish? <laughs>
1: What is it? What is it about? Zebrafish are great. So zebrafish, the biggest thing is that you can actually, um, gosh, I've literally lost off the top of my head what it is. We, we, we add to zebrafish. Oh, sorry. That's awful. Yeah. You can add something to zebrafish embryos and they continue to develop uh, transparently for okay. a number of days. So really great for microscopes um, uh microscope imaging because, and also uh, anything involving like fluorescent proteins and things like that as well, because you've got these completely sort of trans, uh, transparent or translucent embryos. You can, they they have these little round yolks that they kind of like develop around, which actually means that you can actually create these really cool petri dishes with like dips in. That you can actually just stick a zebrafish embryo kind of like, so it's stuck in the dip, stays on its uh-huh. side and microscope image that across like, 3 days and you'll be able to then create like this time, these these beautiful time lapses of embryo development from one cell stage all the way through like 3 days old just before they're sort of like ready to go off swimming in their little dishes a little bit more and stuff so that they're, they're really great visually to use for sure um other cool stuff they have like ability to like regenerate cells within like their heart and stuff like that so that's really cool um you can you know, start to see things around like blood circulation as well at some points and things like that. Um and obviously there's a lot of like homology and inter- um similarities in terms of their development, other vertebrates development, human de- uh, vertebrate development. Um so yeah there's there's loads of uses of zebrafish um and obviously you know they're quite easy to look after <laughs> um and you can have lots and lots of them and you can breed them very quickly and very easily. And you can tell the difference between the males and the females. And you know, there's there's loads of like just handy things with them. Um, I think one of the things that I found quite interesting was the amount of time it took to kind of realize that if you sing to them or speak to them, they seem to breed better. Now, I don't know if this is real, but it's always worked for us. Like I remember in my lab being like, oh. My zebrafish aren't laying eggs and one of my lab mates will be like have you spoken to them recently and i'm like well, what are you on about and then go down have a chat with them in the aquatics facility and then the next day they're fantastic so i mean that's a study of n equals one
0: but i think it works oh, wow i'm I'm imagining sort of james brown type something going on here
1: <laughs> well that's the thing like when you breed them and stuff you know you have to for, for egg collection firstly they you know, they lay, lay, hun- lay hundreds of eggs at a time you know they can get Anything from sort of hundred to two hundred, are like spawning. Um, they do it quite quickly as well, and um, they'll only do this as well when they're in sort of shallower water. So while they're in the big tanks, you're absolutely fine. You know, they're not they're not breeding or anything like that. So you just take them out sort of in a little male female pairs, get like a um, little tank that's maybe sort of like that deep or so with a divider in the middle, male on one side, female on the other. Sort of make sure they're you know seeing each other, very excited about what's about to happen and things, and then you like. let it it happen and then sort of within sort of an hour you've got like a whole tray of eggs at the bottom which have all been fertilized pretty much all the time you know so it's 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 like they're trying to help us let's say
0: sounds like an early 2000s channel 4 tv show (laughs) (laughs) well
1: when we when we moved into the crick, we had this uh this new thing I, don't, I can't even remember what the actual name of it was called. I think we called it the ice spawn. Maybe I'm not entirely sure, but definitely it was called the ice spawn. But so previously we were doing, you know, one fish, one fish, one fish, one fish. Maybe sometimes two fish, one fish uh, per little uh, little menagerie if they're lucky. Um, but the the ice spawn I think was like you can put like maybe like fifty fish in this thing, and then like kind of just let them let them go, and then you just get get like thousands of eggs coming through. And like, you know, it's just one of those ones where you like stepped up the production and in your head. You're going, this is great for my research. And I have like all of these eggs that I can use and things. Then also you're like, if I just made a fish orgy. Yeah, I have, I have just made, <laughs> yeah, that's what I've just done. Yeah. Mm. We're going to need to come up with a better technological word for that to go into my thesis.
0: Yeah. You'll have to call it Love Island tank or something. <laughs> uh, and and when you were just talking then i realized that i think i'd heard a lot i i think there must be a group at oxford that do a lot of work on the uh, regeneration of the hearts of zebrafish and i think there's am i right that there's like um two batches of zebrafish that have developed separately so that they're pretty much identical but one group can heal and one group can't and I don't know. You might not know that I realize that might not be your subject and I just have happened <laughs> to her a couple of times. Yeah, on it. <laughs> it's
1: it's slightly further away from my subject for sure, but what I do remember is that when I had my interview for my PhD, um we were given a kind of, I think maybe four papers or something like that and you've got to pick one that you could then sort of present on. And I do remember that the paper that I picked was on the zebrafish heart development and they'd just done the um rainbow ass- assays I think it was called, um which was basically where you know you could you could Basically, individually, like, tag cells in development with different colors by using, like, mixtures of colors of different, um, different genes and proteins and, and basically create these incredible, beautiful rainbow sort of, um, organs after, you know, XYZ uh, levels of, uh, stages of development because the cells, um, Each of the individual cells that was tagged was able to then, um, as it sort of uh, multiplied and went down, went um, across times of development, they'd they'd be that colour. So you'd, you'd see where the origins of those cells would end up. And you could see these beautiful sort of multicolored sort of hearts where you could see, okay, this section here was from, you know, this cell here and this section here was from this cell here. So, you know, that that sort of stuff was happening at the time where I started my PhD. I remember just thinking that, you know, that imaging and the stuff that was going on there just felt so beautiful and like artistic as well as like obviously incredibly useful in giving us all of this information. And and I think when I was presenting the paper and they were sort of asking, you know, what are your thoughts on the paper? And I was like, my thoughts are they came up with this method and just wanted to show it in a really beautiful way, and they found out some interesting things about sort of like what developed first and what didn't, but the, realistically that wasn't really the purpose the purpose was like the technique and the imaging and the colors that came off the back of it and you know being able being able to prove that you could do this so you know, things have moved on a lot since then for sure, but like even even back then, I just knew how special it was to work with sort of you know imaging and, and in development you know and how and how important that was
0: wow that's so cool yeah and and i love well i mean that's it i think this is a lot i've talked uh, with a few other people and and proving the concepts of processes proving that you can do something or that there's better ways of imaging or you know i mean that's a big part of it seems like it comes up in most of these talks to be honest is like how do we image in the best way whether it's on of um, the nanoscale, or whether it's on a much larger sort of scale, um, you know, in planets and stuff like that. It's
1: yeah, it's for sure. I mean, like we're humans, we're visual people, we're visual creatures. You know, as much as not everyone may ha- maybe have the same sort of visual abilities, by nature of you know who we are, everything at some point gets turned into a photo, a graph, an image, or something like that. So. Most of the research that we do, in some way, shape, or form, has to m- make it into that form at the end of it. um You know, even even when we're looking at genetics, even when we're looking at DNA, you know, I, I there are there are genetic visualizations that happen. You know, the, the genome visualizations are a thing, and you know, you you end up with you know a graph on your screen with all of the letters, you know, all the A's, C's, G's, and T's, you know, in the, in their different colors because they know that that's how that's how we work. You know you never you never show you never show the molecules, you know, themselves. You show the letters that represent them and you turn them into different colours. And you know, you look at for example, you know, like the as a really crude example, the path that is um in Cambridge that goes to like the Sanger Institute in and, uh, and across from the Sanger Institute to Cambridge is, is like a, a DNA path and that's like coloured blocks in different orders that represent, you know, a section of human DNA. Like it's oh. it's all about that visual medium as well at the end of it as
0: well. I didn't know that. I've not actually spent that much time in Cambridge. Oh. Um, so it's, yeah, spent all the time at the, the enemy. Um, <laughs> mostly it's just so <laughs> hard never, never to get switch. to from Oxford. Um I think if there was a way of getting there quickly and easily, I'd have been there an awful lot more than I am, but we've got to go through London and you're talking four hours each way, which is quite remarkable yeah. really. Um, One thing that is interesting. So I, I work with kind of inanimate things. I work with vacuums and metals or maybe plastics and ceramics, but you'll, you know, all this work you're talking about it. And I think probably once or twice, I winced a little bit because you're talking about um, embryos in Petri dishes and injecting things and, um, I think I realise that we need to do some of these experiments, but also I've been a vegetarian for twenty six years, and I'm kind of very much to like save the animals, but uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's really difficult. Um, I realise that's probably an awful lot of big topic on ethics, but you know, what are your thoughts no, on that? It's
1: it's really important. You know, I actually I I'm I'm actually uh eat vegan now, and I have been. Uh, at least pescatarian my entire life so the work that I've had to come up with this for myself like figuring out how do I take my personal ethics around the consuming of animals and how do I rectify that against the fact that I'm doing this medical research will which will inevitably involve animals at some point point. Um, and I knew this sort of kind of from probably GCSE biology when I was really like okay this is the path they want to take that I was going to have to figure out how how those two sides of me sit together in a, a acceptable way. And there was like a huge internal debate as to like, you know, am I justifying something that I actually don't believe in in order to follow this other thing for selfish reasons? Am I not? You know, all the all of these conversations happened in my head. And we also had um some really good ethics lectures. Um so I went to my undergrad was at King's Um College London. We had some really good undergrad ethics lectures where they genuinely gave the platform like the lecture platform to people on complete opposite sides with zero framing of these lectures so this was for like animal research for example you know I'm trying to remember what the other ones were but like that one really stuck out to me where it was like here you are here is someone who is somewhat of an animal rights activist and a scientist of some form which doesn't use who doesn't use animals at all is another researcher who does use animals and there was no framing they gave us no context or anything like that because it was very much like look here's two sides make up your own mind like we're not going to sway you on anything you need to make this choice yourself where you feel comfortable but I really like i thank i thank my university a lot for giving us that side of things and what it led me to think was basically i needed to come up with my own line in the sand for various things Um, you know i have my personal ethics in terms of how i conduct myself you know i don't eat meat I don't I don't eat fish you know I don't eat dairy products that's that's my personal consummation uh consumption um now the question is then okay how does this relate to medical and health research and un, it was kind of understanding what's necessary in order to progress not just human health but also animal health as well and um you know what what is the way to relieve the most amount of suffering in various ways and also therefore what is my what are my limits in terms of you know, where where do I draw the line in terms of what animals I work with? Where do I draw the line in terms of like the age of the animals that I work with and things like that? And that's where it kind of came to that point where it's like, okay, I saw you know, I I saw mice being killed during my undergrad as part of research. And it was kind of one of those ones where it's like, oh, do I think I could ever actually do that myself? And I to be honest, I don't think I can. And because of that reason I would probably not choose to do research with mice or with um, mammals of that type and higher, partly because I think you need to take responsibility for your own actions. And I couldn't also, therefore, legitimately feel comfortable doing research on animals that I've got someone else to kill. Like that just doesn't, you know, that that kind of feeds into my same psyche when it comes to like not eating meat myself as well. Like I could never kill an animal. Beside the fact that I think there's other reasons as well, but like I could never kill that animal. So therefore I'm not about to pay a supermarket to go and kill it, chop it up and put it into nice packaging. So I don't have to deal with that consequence. So that's kind of where that kind of line came for me in terms of what animals I was willing to work with. And then when it came to like around the fish side of things, you know, yes, I think there is still issues in terms of sort of animal husbandry that need to make sure they're always at the forefront of everything, you know, animals, If we are going to be using them within health research, within medical research, there is so much about, you know, making sure that that is an appropriate environment, that they are well looked after, that the people looking after them and people using them in experiments respect the fact that that is still life that you're looking after there. Um, the thing around with embryos, though, I think is where I have a very different view- viewpoint, and that's because you know I'm very much pro-choice, and in terms of human side of things, and in terms of animals as well, that obviously comes through into the same concept of like where do I draw the line at where life starts, and like that. And for me, that's a very different sort of a different conversation entirely to consumption and like you know adult animal life and things like that. So I think that it, there's a lot of complex you know thoughts around that. But first and foremost, I will say that, you know, there are some things that if we want to progress in certain parts of health and medical research, we can't do it without the use of animals at the moment. It would be great. And I think there are a lot of people out there who are working really hard to get us to a position where we can start replacing animal models with cultured cells, cultured organs and things like that, which is going to be you know, it's phenomenal, phenomenal when it happens. The problem is we're not there yet. Um, and that's why it's quite hard because we can, we can see it. We can see this opportunity to remove so much, you know, animal death from our research, but we're not there yet. And it's, it's just making sure that we keep a realistic track of where we get to. I mean, I think it's the same when you think about actually to get to that point as well. There needs to be animal experiments as well that leads to it. So it's, it's this constant cycle of, sort of weighing things up. And my opinion won't be the same as the next person's. And there'll be other people that will think I'm wrong and other people think I'm right. The idea, I guess, is to make sure that we have a well thought out scientific consensus and an understanding of ethics and ethos behind things. That means that we work in the best way for sort of the general sector. And to very much take everyone's thoughts into account when it comes to this. I think that's really important. You know, this can't be led by like one person's thought somewhere saying this is how we do things. It's got to be a continuous conversation that is really reflective and agile in response to research that's being done. Um, I guess the only real thing at the moment as well is that for medicines to be given to humans, basically, there needs to be some animal trials before that. Um and this is i'm very clear by the way this is medicine and this is research medical and health research yeah this is yeah. not cosmetics you know that yeah. is a completely different thing it's very much like thinking about this box specifically and there's yeah i think there's there's loads of great work that can be done on this and i think the idea of this sort of like reduce you know reduction of animals you know and refinement of ex- experiments and things like that i think is really and replacement you know wherever possible i think is you know that that ethos still needs to remain, and I think it really does. Um, I think people people I remember being I remember being in primary school and we had debates about animal testing, and I remember going to the library and getting a book out and looking through at the pictures of you know bunnies with sewn up eyes and things like that. And like it, it's it's a very different world to what we're living in now and what we're talking about now. You know this is this is very specific. I mean there's stuff that I think one one quote that really stuck with me actually from those lectures when I was at Kings was that you can't make a cell cough in culture now a cough doesn't feel like much maybe to you or i but there are people out there with debilitating coughs that mean that they crack their lungs every uh, their ribs every time that they have a coughing fit you know it, it how how do you weigh up those those things on someone's conscience of like oh we're not going to help you or versus actually we can and then once we've done that, we no longer need to use those animals for that process anymore. You know, it, it's it's all this sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's the same with everything. You've got to have all the information, know what you're doing and, and make your decisions. And it's good that Kings gave you those lectures yeah. to allow, you know, they weren't trying to inform you or change your mind in any way. They gave you the information. I think it's good that you've got your lines and you know where it is and you can, you know, you've taking that internally and like you say the you know it sounds like the, for you there's a big difference between animal testing and medicine and i agree i completely agree mm-hmm. and i realize that we do unfortunately we are still in the point where we do need to test on animals as much as i don't want to like you say we need to be able to sort of work on medicines for people that have got Facilitating illnesses and
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you you've got so many medicines out there in the world today that are really, you know, they save lives. They mm. help people, you know, live on a day to day basis. You think about like an asthma pump, for example. You know, like without without animal research as part of this, we, we wouldn't have some of those things. And it's it's you've got to remember that as well. I think the biggest thing I will say is that you know every scientist who is going to be working maybe with animals needs to have this. Conversation with themselves basically and i think all of undergrads you know across the country should have this in their in their lecture series maybe even you know in their like tutorials or something like that to say okay really think how do you feel about this how do you feel about using the animals yourself animals that you could be using you know there are there are animals you know things you, you can use all sorts of animals in research and sometimes you have to and sometimes you don't and it's it's this idea you know you're gonna have to You're going to have to face up to it at some point. You better do it early um, because otherwise, you know, you could end up, you know, far too deep in research and realizing that actually there's something that you need to do that you physically don't see yourself being able to do. Um, And also this conversation, I think you have with yourself kind of continually as well. Um, and making sure that you know you are continually comfortable with where you're drawing lines and boundaries because people's people's ethics do change people's people's you know moral lines they, they will always evolve you know there's there's learning that's always being done hopefully by everyone to inform their choices so you know you have to you have to keep that going and I don't think I also don't think you know I would never I would never look down on someone who's using animals in research in a way that I wouldn't either because if they've had that conversation with themselves, and you know, with the research that they need to do, and things like that, I think it's you—it's know, very different for each individual. So I think it's—it's it's very much trying to think about this non-judgmental place, putting the animals' needs, you know, first uh, as much as possible. You know, it's—it's it's making sure that, that if we are going to be using animals in research, we're honest about it as well, especially to the public. You know, the, the open reporting of you know how many animals should, that each. Uh, institute is using is it really important there's no point shying away from this conversation you know you have you have research institutes with flaws and flaws of you know animals that are being used in research if we hide it it makes us look even worse and it makes us you know it it makes it seem like we're hiding poor maintenance yeah poor poor animal husbandry or things like that it's not like that you know i think you know you you know all the animal research ins- um, units. You know they've got vets that you know continually. You know the idea is to look after the animals, and you know it's not, it's not a, it's not an awful place. I think is the best thing to way to describe it. You know it's it's making sure that we are continually improving the way that we use animals in research for their benefit and for ours.
0: Almost sounds like um, I'm I'm pretty absolutely sure in fact that you know some of those animals are actually probably getting treated better than people's pets. Yes. Yeah. My view know. on that is that not <laughs> everyone should have pets. But
1: Agreed. And I think, could neither of us eat meat, I think the idea that someone might slate my use of animals in research and go and have a sausage at home, I found it very difficult to have a sort of debate about something like that. So there's, oh, there's, yeah. a, there's a there's a whole section there.
0: No, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's good that, you know, I said, I think it's good that King's had those conversations. And I like the fact that, I mean, hopefully that's part of the culture now, that it isn't just animals are inferior, that, you know, universities are actually changing the way they work and their ethics and their principles and being more open about these things, like you say, not hiding anything and not pretending and not feeling themselves. And if that is part of the culture and, like you see. Whenever it's possible, moving away from animal testing, then it, it's more it's a, it's more of a positive. Th- it, it's it's still rather it didn't happen, but you can understand yeah, why,
1: and that's okay because I think that's that's still you know that's the end goal. You know, we st- if you aim towards that, which is like we can move away from using animals in research entirely, and you do it with you know, if you, I always I always like to talk about intention, just in general. This is like in life, in science, and everything like that. If someone has good in intentions you know to genuinely get to that point and to improve then i think that is that is really the thing that is the most important you know the intention isn't to harm animals in terms of like you know but for, for no reason really you know if the intention yeah. is to move away from using animals entirely so let's keep going down that path let's make sure that we are funding that research as much as we're funding research where we are using animals you know, think things like that. I think that's that's really important. And again, you know, the intention around like universities or research institutes, you know, reporting and stuff. There's no, like I said, the intention isn't to hide. The intention is to be honest. You have to be able to look at yourself and say, okay, if everything of me like around this was exposed, would I feel comfortable? If the answer is no, you're not doing it right, and you need to look at your own practice. Whereas if the answer is that yes, if I was completely honest about everything that I've done regards to animal research. I would feel comfortable with people knowing that. And I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, no, th- thanks for that. I realise it um, wasn't necessarily what I thought we'd be talking about and possibly <laughs> neither did you, but it's it's something that, you know, even just as a, as a bystander, it's something I struggle with, with, the point of I know that we need it, but I also wish that we didn't. And so in some ways it's kind of nice to know that at least – Relatively, they're being treated well and we're trying to move away from it. And people are not just sort of using these animals like someone picking up a slab of meat in the supermarket, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a completely different world, you know. I, I remember as well. I remember when um, there was a piece of research into the housing of the mouse of mice and um, how to make them less stressed, basically within their own of uh, within their little I want to say cages, but like it. <laughs> he just brings up an image which is not the same as what happened like tanks more like giant hamster tanks type thing yeah anyway so one of the things is like actually the mice um being observed was somewhat stressful sometimes um and they very much needed like their own space but obviously as a researcher you needed to be able to see them in order to you know check up on their welfare and things like that so you know you look out for things like have they chewed their fur and things like that and you know that that's a sign of stress so you want to make sure that they're not in stressful positions you know making sure that they are not being used in experiments for example or being handled if they show any signs of stress you you want them to be chilled and relaxed And so they uh, there was a, a little um a little sort of perspex like hut that got put into the um mouse cages there was a specific type of like red Um, Plastic, which had like particular refractive properties, which basically meant when the mouse was inside, it was like a little dark hole of like comfort, like a little cave for it. But we could still, as researchers, see in. So we could see that they're, you know, sleeping well and having like still relaxed and things like that the outside without having to disturb them at all. And it's like little things like that, like the small practices that they're really cheap to make. And they were like, you know, rolled out almost instantly across sort of like all of the cages and things like that. And you're like, okay, this is really cool that we are still putting time and effort and energy into this and it's really important that we do this you know we were, and i think there's some research out recently around um how how to handle mice as well to make sure you reduce stress you know think like the comparison of um whether you're picking up sort of with the with the the, the end of the tail that's like close to the bum basically um mm. you know if you if you use that as sort of a main sort of mechanism of picking them up versus if you pick them up using i want to say in my head I think I've probably read this slightly wrong, but like the version of like cardboard, you know, and like scooping them, you know, <laughs> okay, yeah. and like and like the different and like the differences that that can make to their stress levels and like that. So, wow. continually improving, you know, even handling, I think, is also really important. Um, and I, I know that like the NC3Rs, um, the you know they and the the, um, the the research and the sort of publishing of this when it comes through is really important to the whole field.
0: Huh. that's. Awesome. Kind of interesting. It's it's really good that they're sort of looking at and putting active time and resources into looking at this. And uh I don't know, maybe this is the cynic in the back of my head, but are we doing the same with our researchers? I mean I don't know what the feel like, but I mean, that is all an the other fields... segue. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Are we matching the research that we're putting into reducing stress of mice with the re- that of reducing stress of researchers? Probably not, you know, probably not. Especially recently you know probably been incredibly stressful time for everyone and yeah so much needs to be put into that i was actually just had an edis meeting this morning and now there's a call of a number of there's a number of our members that have been involved in surveys and studies at the moment um speaking to researchers try and find out really how much this pandemic and this lockdown has impacted mental health well-being career prospects um, you know how they feel about the research that they're doing right now what they think the impact might be and things like that and hopefully we'll be able to pull all of that together because we have such a broad variety of firstly members but also the types of information they've been gathering and we, we want to pull that together because the insights are incredible in terms of like understanding what's the immediate impact versus what's the sort of medium-term impact and the longer-term impacts that people are uh, seeing that are going to happen um but yeah, I think that this is, this is the time where we really have seen already inequity in terms of resilience, mm-hmm. you know, was already there. And now we've had this huge stressor situation and it's all come out basically. And I think that's the prime example of why, why so much work needed to be done before all of this happened. But now if we don't, you know, if we don't do something about it, we're almost in crisis mode.
0: That's kind of interesting. Do you think I mean I, I sort of believe that things like and I realise this is a different topic, but you know, things like Trump in America are inevitable because if things are just slowly declining or we're becoming ambivalent about things, then of course things have got to get a lot worse for us to take note. Do you think that, you know, in academia, in the the academia sort of climate, do you think that this is the is that sort of crisis that could actually it means that we can look at how we're doing things and how we're treating our researchers and academics and you think this could be a positive could potentially have positive I realise you can't see the future <laughs> Um.
1: yeah I mean I think we one thing I will say in terms of things like, like around for example Trump in America and those types of things is they're actually I don't think this is necessarily ambivalence that has sort of led to that it's actually been quite a lot of polarisation I think that's been going on um, in terms of sort of like the two two camps of like for example left and right right wing politics now i think we're in a position now within research where we're thinking about there's a lot more people talking about changing research culture and things like that at the moment and obviously with that i do worry that there is a there's a concern that we could end up polarizing um the research sector as well into those who want to stick to the current system and don't see what's wrong with it for example or you know don't you think think that this is the right way to do research Versus those who really want to move to a completely different version of how we structure things. Um, I I don't think you know that's healthy if we were to completely sort of split into these two polar camps. What we really need to do is create this sort of like overarching movement of change into a better version of what's going on. I will say I'm very much stuck in sort of that camp of sort of things need to change. Things have needed to change for a while, and um, this does feel like a moment in time where we've got clear evidence of inequality we've got clear evidence of you know the impact of stress situations uh, and you know sudden sudden catastrophes essentially you know on different people and we've got we've got enough people now really sort of like wanting to change I think it feels like now, I could be looking at this with rose-colored lenses of sort of d practitioners for the past sort of 30 years have seen this sort of cycle happen, you know, all the time. But I also, we haven't had a global pandemic in that time, so that's why it does feel different. And um, the thing now is to really harness that and sort of figure out how to move forward. Um, I think there was, an, there was, like I said, they had this EDIS meeting this morning, and there was this exceptional sort of like moment where people were just basically like, you know what? It's time to rip up the rule book. It's time to like design something from scratch and see where that lands because this feels like the time where we could actually get away with proposing something completely different. And I really was sort of like, I, I, I've I, suggested this a few times like to different people yeah. throughout the past however many years. And each time it's been like, oh no, we can't get rid of the new system until we have a new version, like can't get rid of the old system until we have a new system in place. Whereas now it's like, all right, so let's start on that new system. Let's figure out what that could look like and see where we get to. And I'm sort of like, oh, so it, all it takes is a slight global pandemic to get people to really like want to change everything completely dramatically.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Um, or, or we you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths and we're fine. Oh, gosh. Don't talk. Oh, wow. Really,
1: really bringing it home there, isn't it? God. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, is, it, is, it is upsetting that it's taken something as huge as this. things to change in the same way for example like if you think about the resurgence and surgence of the Black Lives Matter movement over the spring and summer you know it's awful that it's taken highlighting police violence and you know murder in the states of black people to make people do anti-racist learning in their day-to-day it's awful that it's taken that but it has had an impact and it's really difficult to then be like okay That's happened, which is awful. And I would love to be able to, you know, people want to say, like, this shouldn't have happened because of this. It should have been happening already. Unfortunately, we can't go back in time. So it's like, okay, let's try and harness this moment and make sure this is happening. And there are organizations that have obviously made outwardly public statements around racism in academia, in research, in their own institutions and organizations. And I commend those who spoke frankly and honestly about their own part in it as well. Now it's just making sure that those, people, those organizations are held accountable to things that they've promised. You know, have they said that they're going to change their ways and th- do things about it? Yes. So therefore, they need to do those things. And we need to go back to them in X amount of time and say, look, what have you done? You have said you were going to do this. You, know, you've took part, you took part in what is this popular movement over the summer as a result of this awful event. Now what? What are you doing about it? And also those organizations that said stuff without any commitment." they also need to be brought into this sort of conversation and be like okay you've said something or you know retweeted something or something like that what have you figured out what's wrong with you yet you know because every organization within science and health research for example you know there is racism entrenched in the systems in the policies and in the processes and um, you know diversity as an output is an ex- is like a symptom of that and you know you can you, you can report on diversity statistics they We're not diverse enough, so we need to do something about it. It's like, okay, so what is the ingrained systemic racism that is really driving that? And how are you going to reflect on that as yourselves, as an organisation, and as individuals, to get rid of that and to change it? And that could be destroying that system and creating a new one because it has been designed by, you know, white people basically, or essentially white supremacy. You know, like that's that's something that is hard conversation to have but needs to happen and i think that starting like making sure that organisations are doing the hard work around that i think is really important in this moment as well so that in terms of racism and anti-racist uh, anti-racist learning and improvements plus global pandemic and the stresses and general inequality that's been seen as well around other areas too i think you know, the fact that those two things have happened at the same time as well like we really <laughs> we really need to latch onto this and we need to do something and we have the momentum i think to do it and i think yeah it's it's exciting it's scary because it always is you know burning something down and starting again will always be scary and i'm not saying that's what we're going to do necessarily you know this is no criminal damage going on here but it does it is very much like a okay this this feels different this feels different this, this time around
0: interesting you're talking about sort of making Not making firm commitments. It's interesting. I'm sort of in a position for one thing where I wanted to say this is bad, but I didn't want to be making any promises about what we were going to do about it because I don't know what the issues are and I can't promise that I'm going to change things or, you know, make a difference until I know what that is. And I think like a month later, someone's like, So what have you done? And it's like, Well, we've not seen anyone, we've not been able to talk to anyone, everyone's away. Like, I don't want to be over-promising and Um, under-delivering. At the same time, you want to make it clear that you're genuine about it, right? A
1: hundred percent, yeah. I think the biggest thing, so every organization and every individual was at a different point in their own journey around understanding racism, Mm -hmm. systemic racism, and developing an anti-racist approach. The question is, if you you, your organization or anything like that, hadn't thought about this before this would have been a wake-up call going, oh, crap, we've not thought about this before and this is this is big, this is a big thing. And that first section there can include fear as to we've no idea what to do or where to go. Now, thankfully, because so many organizations were either having these wake-up moments or these public moments at the same time, there is a lot of information out there. There always was on Google, but it's so much more obvious in the public's sort of eye and in the sector as well. there are places to go to you know find information out organizations who have put their own statements their own action plans out there already Mm. but what probably will happen you know without committing to we're going to change all of our ways because we don't know which ways need to change is that first sort of self-reflection of going, okay, we need to look internally at our own organization and really figure out where racism plays a part. Where have we allowed this to happen? Where have we enabled this to happen even? and start there because that's that's something and you know, that could be for example looking at the symptom looking at the symptomatic you know diversity data seeing where are we where have we got clear underrepresentation could be the entire organization it could be you know very, very specific um levels of seniority within the organization could then be looking at the policies and the practices and going okay are we gatekeeping in some way is that gatekeeping related to other social inequality including racism you know, is that something that we can look at? And it's really sort of like taking that time to self-reflect and figure out what is it, where is it, and how have we enabled racist structures to occur within our organisation and therefore within the sector.
0: Yeah, I was in a meeting um, last week. I, I Time is a weird concept right now. Uh, but I was in a meeting last week and I said, where is the data for... LGBTI plus people um so the other you know other diversity data was pulled out and that wasn't and they said oh well the numbers are too small so Mm -hmm. you know we haven't got data and I'm like well you know the general consensus is that LGBTI plus people make up seven percent of the population so if you've got data that's too small that means that you're not in target and you know when we're looking at schools now we're talking up to 45 percent so if you've not got any data, and it's the same, I think, with race in certain positions as well, the data is too small. It's like, well, yeah, but the population isn't. Why don't yeah. the population and the data that you've got match? Where's the problem? And 100%. they were like, oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, if, if you can't report the data because the percentages are too small, for example, you already know that you've got underrepresentation. You know, it's, you can't then not comment on it. You know, missing data mm-hmm is still important to know because you still know. If you've got under, um, if people, for example, have been asked to voluntarily uh, input diversity data, for example, and you find out that, you know, most questions are answered 90% of the time, but the one on sexual orientation or the one on gender identity is answered Mm -hmm. 50% of the time, you know there's something wrong there, not in terms of like you can say, What uh, proportion of um, people you're representing but you can say you have an issue with how people feel about confiding Mm, this data therefore people are concerned as to how this data reflects on them and how this data might be used on them which more often than not says I don't feel comfortable telling you for example like that I'm queer because I think you're going to treat me differently as a result of it or you know something there's something like that around it so all when it comes to data collection there's, there's diversity data collection there is so much important information to be had in the way the questions are asked the way they're answered and then also the results you know it's not just a here's your numbers at the end of it there's more to it than that
0: yeah i mean i, I think the the people the meeting that i was in last week i, I think was a little dismissive because they are on it and they do appreciate this i think they just didn't realize that you know like, say, we're talking 7% of the population upwards is LGBTI+. Plus. And I guess that's all about which circles you move in, who you have around you, who you're friends with. And, you know, our circles are our circles. It's as simple as that. And sometimes I know in Oxford, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange place. So I can understand how that happens. Um, but that's why I think we saw a letter that was published um, not in a scientific journal but in another journal by scientists saying that there isn't a problem with racism and it's like well that's because of who you're talking to and mm. like you say sometimes the absence of data can tell you just as much as the actual data itself I think and
1: Maybe. that's why we talk about like when we talk about groups and we talk about diversity the reason a lot of people say you know like you get A diverse group and that's the solution sort of thing and it's like actually it's the process itself like are you talking to people with different lived experiences different backgrounds and therefore different perspectives to bring to the table the other thing is also thinking about how people prioritize this is something i'm really like stuck on at home which is like everyone prioritizes stuff based on their experiences So therefore, pretty much everything we do in work, in research, in everything, we're creating priorities. We're deciding what's important and what's less important. And the only way that we can do that in a way that is fair is to, one, amplify the voices of those from um, minority groups who aren't able to have the same number of voices at Mm -hmm. a table, for example, but then also to, to bring those people into that conversation and make sure that they are involved from the off so that we are getting everyone's perspectives from the from that first point you know if you were to say think about you know what's people's favorite color for example this is like a completely sort of side of thing if you were to say what's what's the uk's favorite color you know and you go out and you, you survey a group of people and you survey a group of people who are all sort of the same in some way who all you know a group of chelsea supporters for example they're all going to say blue you know, but that doesn't mean that's the favourite colour of the whole of the UK, nor does that have any granularity in terms of the other favourite colours. So you can't go around painting all the streets blue and thinking that everyone's going to think it's great, because it doesn't work like that. You need to bring other people into the room and also if you've got someone out there who is allergic to blue for example you know you need to make sure their voice is being heard so you don't go off and paint everything blue and then they have an issue you know like it's it's it, it's like the weirdest sort of like comparator in the world but it's the way that i'm trying to explain it in sort of like this abstract manner of why it's so important to have everyone's opinions around the table and why it's so important where you know especially if you're in a group of people you think about who has the loudest voice. The loudest voice will be the majority group because it'll be the amplification of the same voice 10 times. So therefore you need to find other ways to amplify people, people's voices who are in the minority groups, whatever that is, because otherwise, no matter how much you try to have everyone at the table, this voice will still not be heard as much as the others. If you just have this sort of like equal version of things, you need equity. You need to be able to amplify the voices of those from minority groups and you need to be able to make it fair in terms of how they're heard and who's being heard in decision making because otherwise you know it's this idea of like okay let's say we get a representative of the population around a table and everyone has a single vote, which sounds really fair you've still got a majority if you're voting in your in your own personal interests you still have a majority therefore having complete control yeah, yeah. and it's like it, it, suddenly, you're like, "Oh, wow! Okay, so do we need to come up with like a different version of democracy within decision making in order to make sure that we're doing doing this actually equitably and actually fairly? Because otherwise, those who are in minority groups will always not be able to have, you know, votes that are that are equal because they're still a minority. So, therefore, you need to start one, increasing number of people from minority backgrounds into that decision making process, and two, making those who are in the majority groups." not vote in the self-interest anymore but vote in the group interest and it's those two things together that are so important yeah (laughs) got me on a tangent now
0: (laughs) no but it's a good tangent to have and it's it's interesting when i'm thinking about it because i I completely agree like i said like you know there's not enough lgbti plus people in 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 science that we need to increase it but then um I, I I don't know, I'm I, I'm starting to have complicated uh, opposing thoughts as well, though, like how do you, because occasionally you'll have extremist views and those extremist views are just there to be contrary or due to a lack of, uh, due to ignorance or, or whatever it is. And I was talking about those academics who were writing and saying racism isn't a problem and women are less intelligent than men was another paper. And so how do we balance those views?
1: Yeah. I mean this Can is the you thing you've got to remember that underlying this is you've got a this idea of intent and this idea of social justice. So firstly the intent has to be good. The intent has got to be, you know, you're trying to do good things. So these people who are out there playing devil's advocate because they've got no investment in the game, you know, that that shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be able to just be like, Oh, I'm doing devil's advocate for the sake of it. Like, that proves to me one that you're Privileged enough to not feel like this is a personal attack, or that this is going to actually affect you. If you feel like you can pose these opinion opposing views um, for no for no reason, and two, is it actually going to help the conversation move on at all? Probably not. Thirdly, you need to think about like, okay, how are we doing this in a way that's not harmful to people? You know, you still got to have you know people's genuine human rights at the core of this, of the core of all of the equality work that we do. You know, it's about making people people's lives better as well you know you're doing this because it's fair and it's the right thing to do and it's just it's not trying to you know diminish a group it's not trying to cause harm to someone it's when people pull out things like for example that you were saying about you know sexism around like intelligence and things like that actually firstly you know it's not based on real science It's not based on true science and it's just sort of like okay firstly you need to make sure that you've got the evidence behind that you know if you're going to start making these claims it's not true same thing as well like you know saying that isn't racism What's, what's that benefiting you know what's the be- what's the benefit of writing that so that people don't do anti-racist work anti-racist work is important and it is good. We need to do it. Racism does exist denying it is you know denying racism is like climate denial like a climate change denial you know there's this there's, there's stuff that, that out there that we know exists. We're scientists so we have evidence anyway but like it's 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 not productive to deny these things. So when you think about like extreme views and things like that, are they doing harm? are these harmful views? That's the difference, you know. it's a harmful view, it's going to cause harm to a person uh, and to a group of people, you know. That's different from someone's voice not being heard because they're being discriminated against, you know, and I think that's something that we have to remember to weigh up. I think when it comes to, for example, thinking about like LGBTI inclusion, you know, again, it, it will likely be that LGBTI people are in the minority in pretty much every single sort of decision-making setting at the moment you know and so it's like okay so when someone says something like in terms of like healthcare for example someone says something uh, about healthcare and we make a decision and the decision being made at the moment you know is very heteronormative if someone puts their hand up and says look have you thought about this you know this version of events that is actually inclusive therefore of lgbti people and that person might be lgbti themselves which is why they've noticed it Just because it's one voice doesn't mean you dismiss it. You go, actually, that will benefit this group. And also, when you design processes or systems for some of the most most discriminated against or most marginalized people, often you'll create a process that's actually beneficial to everyone else as well. You know, like, you know, you, you can design something. For example, you know, design the entrance of a building. You put a ramp there instead of stairs there. Everyone who could use the stairs can still use the ramp. More people can now get in the building because the ramp is more useful. Oh, and it just so happens that I, who can use the stairs, can benefit from the ramp when I want to bring a suitcase in. You know, there's all these additional benefits that happen when you design processes and systems to really support those who have not had their thoughts and their needs designed for previously. Um,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, this is it, like true progress benefits everyone, It, it does. And this is why, for me, I've started branching away from just sort of LGBTI plus equality and worked into more sort of like making STEM, like yourself, STEM more inclusive and equitable for everyone. Because all those changes benefit everyone. Um, I mean, a
1: clear example. So on Monday, we've got um, F1000 Research launching a new policy for name changes in publishing which I know is something that, um, you know, has been mentioned is particularly difficult to do. Yes. You know, that we've got, you know, trans researchers wanting to change their name on p- previous publications so that they have more ownership of those papers. Um, you know, the processes and systems are not transparent, They're not even necessarily done by a lot of journals. Um, so we've worked with F1000 Research to come up with a policy that works. We've worked with researchers to review this policy and check it works for them. And it's, you know, Done in the right way, done in a respectful way, done in an empathetic way—you know, all of this sort of stuff—and when we realise, you know, this policy actually is going to benefit people who want to change their name as a result of marriage, of divorce, um, especially, you know, considering if it's divorced as a result of, I don't know, domestic abuse, and then you know, a previous name brings up also incredibly negative um, emotions as well. If they want to change their name as a result of religious conversion, the policy has been designed in a way that is so inclusive. That all of those groups will also benefit as well, and it's it's just it's it's just such a neat way of designing things where you just consider okay what is what is the hardest version of this for someone at the moment, and how do we make that right? And then you all sort of bring up all of the other people as well at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's one of those things like I never want to cite all papers or share all papers because I don't want to see my dead name and exactly. also. Um, I've had this, you know, this questions come up a few times of like, you know, um, do you disclose that you're LGBT? And it's like, say in job interviews, and it's like, well, for me, I don't have a choice because it's there on my CV. I've got a yeah. different name. It's obvious. I mean, so it's it's something that I know me and other trans activists have been talking about for a long time. So, it really, is great, but yeah i mean we were starting to talk about well what about the victims of abuse what about people that need to get away from other lives or whatever it is there's not just not just trans people that benefit from this so it's really no, great to exactly. hear yeah That's and awesome. it's been
1: really it's been really great to work on that firstly f1000 research and welcome open research have been really responsive in terms of Sort of how to do this as well. So they, you know, they came to us and they're like, we come up with a policy. You know, what do you think about this?" And am like, "That's, you know, we'll go through it, but we need to involve researchers who who are going to be affected by this, who want this policy change, um, you know, for 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 um gender recognition, but also, you know, just making sure that we've got this covering, you know, everything that's correct about this, because you know, I'm not a trans researcher, I I can't comment on whether or not it would be the right process for me so it's making sure you bring those voices in so they were really good at like then slowing down to make sure that we got that feedback we had three researchers review the policy review the blog post that's going out and everything around it as well and make sure they were happy with it too and by because even within that group we had diversity of other characteristics we were able to pull out other things that we also wouldn't have noticed so for example you know, I didn't even I didn't, didn't even clock that there would be gendered surnames existing you know but they do exist in other in other countries and that also needed to be make sure it was addressed when it came to you know providing evidence for this as well. What was the best way of doing that? That meant that someone didn't have to go through another process, which had its own barriers to do this and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a really it's a really good example, and it also shows it was a good I think demonstration of the fact that to do this well takes time, and you have to admit that, and you have to do that, and you have to put the time and energy and effort into it.
0: But by
1: doing it well, it means you're not going to have to redo it. And that's also really important.
0: That's the thing; it's doing it properly. Although we've still got to realise that you know we've got to review these things every couple of years, yeah. no matter how well you do it, because things change. Um, I think you're in a really unique and interesting perspective. The other um, people that I've been talking about, we, we sort of we're doing the sort of diversity and equity stuff on the side, as it were. Whereas, I mean, this is your sort of. Bread and butter. This is what you're doing at the moment. I mean, is that a fair assumption? Is that right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> no. Absolutely. I think with the, it's really, it's the one thing that I've really enjoyed doing, and I think it's the kind of path I forged a lot. Is that the diversity, inclusion, and equality and equity work was obviously a passion of mine. You know, I, I am, I'm a queer woman that was working in STEM. There was, there was a certain amount of like drive for me to set up the LGBT um, plus network at the Crick when I was there which in part was selfish reasons. You know, I, I wanted support and I wanted to offer that to other people as well. And it was like a reflection of my own time going, it would, it would have been great if this had existed. So therefore I want to create that. Um, but the other thing is also then being able to merge the research with it as well. So, you know, my own perspective in terms of like the inclusion of actual research design has hugely changed over the past few years in terms of like understanding more and learning more about it. And sort of really understanding sort of how you can embed inclusion into the system both in terms of who's doing the research how the research is done and then who benefits from it and it all works as one giant sort of like machine that with all the cogs turning in d- different directions but the whole thing's really important so that's been really nice to be able to pair my research experience my actual research topic work in terms of thinking about like population genetics with social justice and equity work as well and merge those together into like an actual permanent well an actual full time job at the moment you know and that's been, that's been really great to do um, it's also been really interesting to then get, you know, to kind of move some of those thoughts that were really ingrained into my brain as a result of like the research side of things and sort of like push them out so that so the social sciences could kind of move in a little bit further because there's, a, there's loads of stuff that like, you know, wasn't included in my undergrad or wasn't thought about, you know, when it comes to, you know, especially with genetics, you know, really understanding um, stigmas associated with genetics research in different cultures, for example, you know, that. That should have been a topic, really, in my undergrad, but it wasn't because we were focused on the technical aspects so much more. So being able to sort of merge all of that together and give myself a, sort of a, a refreshed view of a lot of the research that I I have done and that people are doing now has been quite great. And it has been exhausting doing EGI work as a full-time thing because something that, you know, used to be able to separate somewhat my personal identity with the work that I was doing. Um, Often, you know, my personal identity could be something that I could actually leave at the door if I really wanted to, if I wanted to just get my head stuck into genetics and like sit at a lab bench and do that, you know, whereas it's impossible to do that with the work that I do at the moment. Um, it's impossible to not feel a personal attachment to stuff that we talk about, stuff that we're doing, also stuff that affects people as well. And it's very much the idea of like everything that we do is going to affect people and people are real. Um, and people you know people need to be thought about and their their emotions are valid and sometimes we'll get it right and sometimes we might get it wrong and that's also something we have to you know be honest about and then you do that work sort of in your day-to-day life and then suddenly you know things happen in the outside world that are also completely relevant you know thinking about like um, the gender recognition act and you know the changes that have been and the the voices that have been around that sort of over the summer you know especially like on the on social media like people being for and against it and you know that side of things and then people outside of work therefore looking to you to put input or to talk about it or to educate and things like that you know even for example you know around the Black Lives Matter movement upsurgence, you know people then talking about that outside of work and everything just sort of like merges through into this constant thing add on to that working from home and it's like cool been on 24 hours of the day for six months (laughs) you know like i'm like on call having conversations like you know even even tough conversations with like friends and family members trying to explain why it's okay to say black lives matter and it's really not okay to say all lives matter especially at the current time you know like having those conversations you're doing that and trying to you know do that kind of outside of work and then also sort of like firefighting stuff like within work as well to make sure that you know that the same the same thought process and the same care is being taken to people's words and actions it it, it does i can see i can see why a lot of dni practitioners end up having some form of like burnout in the same way like researchers can have burnout when when your work becomes your life it really you know it it, it takes you down a certain path I guess it's that idea of like how do you harness that passion in a sustainable way and that's really something to talk about and that's related to both my work within EDI within science and health research but also within researchers themselves I see it happening so often you know there's an expectation that you're going to be rolling over these short-term contracts which are like constant sprints of research and constant sprints of productivity it's not sustainable and people people can't do that forever and the people that can do that forever but they're often The ones that can do it because they've got other luxuries in place, you know, other privileges that have allowed them to do that, that, you know, they're not fighting homelessness at the same time, they're not fighting, you know, uh, continuous microaggressions at the same time. There's, you know, that's, it's that idea of resilience to that sort of process and that system. And again, why are we asking people to be more resilient to the system? Why can't we just change that system?
0: it's mm. it's It's interesting a, a lot of what you've just said sort of quite resonates because just yesterday I saw a job come up in my home city of Manchester, which is an EDI job, and you know it's a permanent job as much as any job is permanent, whereas yeah. you know my research contract is coming to an end in in, a, in a, my current contract is coming up coming to an end in a few months, and so this idea of having the luxury of a permanent job is great but then again i think maybe i'm too ingrained in the uh kind of activism and also i won't be able to shut my mouth <laughs> i will take things personally but the point is that i can also walk away when i need to at the moment yeah. you know it's like no i'm doing this in my spare time and so i can turn off my phone for a week and yeah. not get involved in these things and um and I'm fighting to change things, but I don't necessarily have responsibility <laughs> either, you know. And and so I've been thinking about it a lot. That whole thing of like permanent job in my home city, where I might actually be able to save some money, rather than in Oxford, where, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and I, I, but someone I talked to, um, a few years ago, you know, I was looking at EDI jobs, and they said it's a golden birdcage. You know, you might get paid for it, but you know you won't be able to do what you actually want to do so you might not I don't think it's for you
1: (laughs) well that's the thing is that's it's that whole sort of like understanding that yes you know I I love my work and I love what I do and I love working with the organizations I work with and seeing change is always amazing and also sowing seeds for future change is also still something that's particularly good and something I have to you know remind myself like okay might not see the immediate change but there is going to be something coming up that's always great but yeah, that you are still working within this system which has its limits is quite tough and sometimes you you know you butt up against the against this sort of like processes that just mean that you can't do the thing that you want to do or the thing that you know you should do as well and that can be quite tough and it can you know I I, I hear people say it's a thankless job it's not people say thanks and it's really lovely when they do and I really appreciate it so if anyone if I've ever helped anyone say hey, thank you it makes my day <laughs> <laughs> but like it's it's just making sure that like there's an, there's an emotional resilience that needs to happen. And I think that's kind of tough to kind of explain. Like I wouldn't have been able to explain that to myself three years ago before I got into it full time. That I would need to have that and I'd need to know when to be able to switch that on and you know be able to be able to do that side of things. I will say it's quite nice being with Edis. Technically we're hosted by welcome, but because we're sort of this half in, half out, and we're this coalition of organizations, there's a certain amount of protection that comes with that sort of mass of organizations and then having our own ident- having the owner EDIS identity that allows us to be a bit more experimental in the stuff that we talk about and the stuff that we want to do and sort of push some boundaries in different places that we don't wouldn't normally be able to sort of push necessarily. And that's quite nice to be able to do that, so I think that's the difference where I've got that sort of uh, escape from working without w- working in a really strict system you know that 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 little sort of extra extra bit of freedom that really works but um yeah I think the the idea of being able to sort of like switch off when it switch off when you need to or um walk away from stuff that's tough and that it's not something that can happen and that's something that i think you know everyone that i spoke to who works in dni both in welcome but also in other organisations as well talks about how do you how do how do we prioritise what's going to change or what needs to change what projects and things like that when whenever someone comes to us asking for something to change it's because it's not right and it's because it does need to change so saying no is really hard because you know in your heart of hearts that that does need to happen but there's only so many people there's only so much money and things like that you know it's like that's that's the tough because I think uh, yeah everyone I speak to who works in DNI cares they care about it they care about it for other people they care about making the system better You know, they care about being part of you know equitable and fair society and social justice so it's like of course, of course people are going to be passionate about it and of course people are going to put their all into it and I see some of my colleagues doing incredible things and I see the amount of work and energy they put into it because, because they care about other people basically and that's it's really nice to see um, it's just a case of making sure that, that that can be sustained and that is sustainable because you know, you don't, want, you don't want people burning out and you don't want people giving up either. You know, it's just making sure that that works, which I think is also why organisational culture is really important. Make sure that you support people who really care, who put, put a lot of energy and effort into it, who re- make sure they're rewarded well um, and make sure they're supported in like other areas as well.
0: Yeah, great. We need to support. We need to support this. Simple as that. Everyone yeah. needs to support it.
1: And I think this whole sort of stuff where I talk about this in terms of like people working in d n i is also so relevant to people working in research because so many people become researchers because they're passionate about a topic or you know creating something for the benefit of society or you know like finding a cure for something you know all these sort of things are passionate things that people care about they do just pour their own heart and soul into that research and into making those things happen and then get tied up you know by having to then jump through a million hoops to make sure that you've got continuous funding or contracts and things like that and it's like if you're wanting someone to really to to work hard because they want to and to the ability that works for them and sustainably for them you know working to in the best way for them something they care about you need to make the rest of that system easier for them you do not need to put them on precarious short-term contracts you do not need to whip their funding out from under their feet at a moment's notice. You do not need them to funnel all of their research outputs into a very narrow set of criteria of what success looks like. You need to allow people to work in a way that works for them and a way that allows them to harness that passion in a sustainable way that would then benefit society. You know, that's that's something we're not doing right at the moment. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I am sort of advocating for... Kind of like I guess the u uh, k r i future leaders with um projects where you're funding a person rather than a project with outcomes you're funding that person build a career basically and I was encouraging other people to do that the ukri k i doesn't get everything right but um yeah. but you know I think that's a really good project, and yeah admittedly there was a little bit of selfishness at the group i was told. Saying encouraging that they do something similar, I was like, "And give me one!" But you know, <laughs>
1: but this is the thing, though. This is this is you know, there needs to be a wealth of solutions because no yeah. person is the same. This is this is something we always try and we always try and come up with a neat solution that will help, or like you know, that will solve all the answers. The reality is, we're going to need ten different versions of funding streams so people can pick the one that works for them. Some people want short-term contracts because they want to move around loads some people really don't because they want to stay in one place you know this people will want different things and there needs to be options available for everyone and in a supportive environment as well and i think yeah this this idea of just streamlining everything into a one option just doesn't work
0: i agree and even silly stuff like wages you know i mean it costs a lot more to live in oxford or london or other cities than it does to co- live in others i remember there was a, an EU project that I was part of and they used to give out money for short-term mission, uh, scientific missions. And someone got one to come and work in my lab in Switzerland, realising that Switzerland's not EU, but we were <laughs> an associate. And the money that they gave for living costs didn't cover half the cost of a hotel per night in Zurich. But there was no leeway on that. So if yeah. you went to a country where living was really, really cheap, you went home with a lot of money in your pocket and if you went to somewhere like Switzerland you...
1: <laughs> you'd be out of pocket,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were out of pocket. They and, ended and up staying in my spare room.
1: Yeah. Then that opportunity is only available to those who can afford to be out of pocket, which already, exactly. you know, where's bam, that's a barrier that was right away, you know. Think about like also yeah. think about like when that money gets put into someone's pocket, you know, think about um, students and how often People would have to pay up front for travel uh, and then get reimbursed as a grant. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I I did not have spare cash for travel or conference fees, like, ever. And I was supposed to, like, puff that up and then get that back next month? Like,
0: Well, I, I went to a conference last year and it took me seven or eight months to get the money back. And that was flights, hotels, and... Oxford's expensive. I've got no spare cash. You know, it took me a long time. Exactly.
1: That's the thing. Like, you know, if you were, if you're, if you're choosing your career path and you know that that's something that you might have to do, and you don't have that backup and you don't have support in other ways, like. It's, it's, you just can't do it. You just that door is closed. You can't go to those conferences. You can't do that traveling, and therefore you don't get to have the same opportunities to advance your career that other people have. Like the, this, this is the thing. These, these are the things. This is like a, a discriminative policy is in place. This is systematic discrimination of you know of people who don't have financial security. You know that's that's a policy yeah. that you know people say, oh, it's you reimburse the money, it's discriminatory. So you yeah. need to change that policy. There's this stuff like this, like this is the stuff that needs to change within the system.
0: Yeah, I, I I grew up on a council estate in North Manchester, you know, I don't come from a family with money, it's working class background. And I like that they're trying to push for people from different socio economic backgrounds to come to Oxford. But you can't just sort of give them the space because it's too expensive to live here. Even if your accommodation sorted, like just living here is a lot. And so yeah. it isn't just about recruiting from those schools because they're not going to thrive or succeed if their mates are going to balls where they're paid 200 quid for a ticket and they can't even afford to get the outfit that they need to go in. You know, it's just it's yeah. not the same. Um, very passionate about class and, and social economic background, but yeah. um, it's something <laughs> that I don't talk about as much because <laughs> of the trans thing.
1: <laughs> it's It's... It's frustrating, because it's one of those ones that it's like actually, the socioeconomic background is 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 quite an important one, and it it has a lot of intersections with other yeah. aspects of diversity as well. It's also important, you know, you you do you do need to consider it. We are not a protected characteristic. I think it is really important because okay, let's say we've got a diverse group of people, whatever that means, making a decision, but they all went to Eton. Oh, and am, am I talking about the government right now? Um, you, you know, it, it's not the same as actual. You know, diversity of experience as well. You have to make sure you understand those intersections between different aspects in order to do that. Um, albeit my background, my growing up was slightly different. You know, I do remember, you know, payday happening for my parents and being able to get a packet of munchies as a treat mm. rather than a Tempe Freddo. You know, like this, there's certain aspects of like things that happened where you look back and go, oh yeah, that was that was quite tough. And like having to work for a year and in order to make sure I could afford to actually go to London for my undergrad and work in every single summer. You know, Mm. uh, I look back at my Facebook memories. I seem to be complaining about 17 days in a row of cafe work, you know, every single summer, um, you know, scraping together. Like this is the other thing, like mobility around geographic mobility Mm. as a result of socioeconomic um, status and background. You know, you can't just move to a new city unless you've got a deposit. For like rent or something like that, you know, you for travel, for hiring something to take your stuff there, you know. I remember going down on the train, like two suitcases, and that was how I could get my move into London. Like that was that was what I could do because I could I could get a train there and I could get my two suitcases. But driving like a car or a van to move my stuff, like not feasible at that point, you know. It's just and so when people talk about this stuff, they're like, oh, you know, once you get here you get your first like stipend for example for you know your phd you get that at the end of the month and i'm like i've got to wait four weeks until i get money how how am i supposed to survive you know like I, there's no backup funds because because of where you come from you know it's it's yeah it, it, the, the the things that they get put in place where people are like oh that's a good thing you're like is it though is it really
0: <laughs> i have lots of views on this and renting and things like that and you were talking about deposits i mean you know I could move, which would save me maybe £100 a month in rent, which would make a huge difference. But I don't have the money to do that because Mm. you've got to pay for someone to move all my furniture. I've got to have that deposit up front, and I'm not in that situation right now. Like, it costs money to save money. And, yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I remember pawning family jewellery to make sure we got a deposit for a flat whilst at undergrad. You know, like this is there's certain things that you know people just don't expect you to have done and you're like, well that's that's how you that's how you get cash when you don't have cash. You know, like it's it's it's, it's people just don't think about this sort of stuff of like the amount of like buffer you need to have to do an undergrad, to do a PhD, you know, to to go to a different um university for a postdoc, stuff like that. Like it's you need buffer money and that just if you come from a background where that's not a thing that you've ever grown up with how do you ever, how do you find that yeah
0: yes i'm thinking heavily about it at the moment shall we say uh, <coughs> the cost of living in oxford versus living in oxford i love it here but holy moly <laughs> is all i can yeah. say especially <laughs> and you pay a single tax if you're single and too old and grumpy to live with other people you you know you pay a premium it's- simple as that yeah and i am too old and grumpy i've found out to work with other people turns out not so good at it <laughs> um, cool well um i realized that we've talked way longer than an hour and so wow. i really but it's gone so quickly and so easily and um, is there anything else that you did want to mention anything else that we hadn't touched on Um, if there's not that's absolutely fine of course <laughs> Trying to think,
1: like I'm trying to like, what have I talked about, and what do I want you to cut out of this conversation? <laughs> no, I think that we're good. That can also I, be done. I think there's, I don't think there's anything particularly else that I want to add on. I mean, I always, I always, uh, what's it called, give a poke for people to join, join EDIS if they, if they're part of an organisation that's committed to improving an yeah. EDI and wants to work without, you know, the egos at the door and come and help the whole sector as a whole. I think that's uh, my my biggest push for for EDIS.
0: I think that'll lead that. EDIS is MedSci.
1: So, yeah, science and health research are so really thinking about the, so our impact statement is equal and better health outcomes. So, anyone yeah. working in sort of any organization within sort of biomedical health research type fields, medical research type fields, but also anyone, any organization that's involved in advancing the EDI agenda within science and health um, research as well. i um, really interested in hearing from other organizations. You know, there's, there's lots of grassroots organizations that I want to make sure I have access to the organizations that are part of EDIS too. So, always happy to, always happy to connect everyone up as much as possible.
0: Awesome well with that thank you so much thank you for having this amazing conversation and it's really nice to see you again because it turns out it's been quite a while since we've been able to see people and so I haven't seen you for quite a long time so I'm yeah. always busy yeah. when I see you as well
1: <laughs> yeah one of us is either talking or like running around after someone so yeah it's always yeah. always love to speak to
0: you thank you usually so much usually talking cool well thank you so much bye bye <laughs> hello again so uh, that was cool i really enjoyed that we were talking for ages i'm so pleased with um when i was chatting with chris the other week i mismanaged the timing and so didn't get to chat about everything we could uh, this time we still could have talked for longer but it was good to have a really in-depth and long conversation about uh, Lily's work and what you know she sees in the world around in stem so uh, that was really exciting i really enjoyed it say if you've not watched our previous ones please do go back and watch them i know they're quite long but i think they're kind of cool And we've also uh, started releasing them as podcasts so if you look for i think it's science Chapter with dr cora barker um you think i'd know that better wouldn't you but it's available on sort of spotify and apple and other podcasty places and if there's a uh, one that you know of that i haven't um put it on then let me know really um yeah, so, you know, if you don't want to listen to this, like I said, on YouTube, watch it there. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for watching. Uh, if you can like, subscribe and all that malarkey, it's always good. It helps. You know, I'm trying to get a bit of momentum behind these, so please do share. It does, does help a small YouTuber like me. Um, and, yeah, next uh, next time in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking to Fanotti uh, uh, who uh, works for a science publication conference. Uh, that was a fantastic conversation. I just did it earlier in the week uh, at the time of, sort of recording this and it'll be out in a few. Um, so that was a really good, fun conversation. Um, and I'm looking forward to having more awesome conversations with basically amazing people who a scientists, And also, it'll really be fun and just great to chat to, you know? Scientists, um, you know, with people. And it's nice to hopefully bring that in. With that, take care, and I'll see you again soon.